Let's go before the Lord Jesus. We come before you and Lord, we just say thank you. Lord, what response can we have except thank you? Lord, thank you for the things that we can recognize, but thank you for that long, eternal list of things that we are yet to know. Lord, thank you for this day that you've given us a breath that we can be in this place. And thank you for the worthiness that is you that we can praise and adore. Thank you for being a rock that's immovable. Thank you for being a deliverer that delivers from every storm, every trial, every tribulation. Thank you for being a master who is kind, whose yoke is easy and light. Thank you for being a redeemer that has not only redeemed us from, but has redeemed us to. Lord, and in this moment, we realize that we are not the only house of worship in this place. That your house is not made of brick and mortar, but is made of your sons and your daughters. And on this island, in this area, Lord, people are gathering today just like us. And Lord, we want to pray for First Baptist Church, Port St. John. We pray for its pastor, Lord, that you would anoint him, Pastor Andrew, today, that you would anoint him in such a strong and powerful way, Lord, as they stand before you, Lord, and they hear your word and they've sung your praises, Lord, that just like us in this moment, they would stand in awe of you and that your word would not come back void, but instead in Port St. John, Lord, that you would bear forth great fruit that would bring yourself great glory. We love you. Do a work only you can do within us and through us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Or you could stand the whole service if you'd like to. <laughs> On the front row, I get a, I don't think so. So, so they graciously answered for all of you. You know, it's good to be in this place. Um, how many were here Wednesday night, this past Wednesday night? Uh, raise your hand high. Those that were not need to look at those that's hands are raised and just ask them, what happened? <laughs> just, just ask them that one question and let them respond. It was a story to be told. I am very grateful that there's probably not video and slides that maybe had been planned at the beginning of the service that didn't quite work. So that's a good thing because there were moments that will live in infamy and um, you will need to ask the person that raised their hand. The, The lesson is this, when an invitation comes out to be a part of something, just don't miss it because you will be missing a story to be told. I will just say this. It was a trying to sell of a product that the pastors were trying to sell, and it was called Swayze Pants. (laughs) And it was made for those that can't dance, and you put the pants on and you're able to miraculously dance. That's all I'm going to tell you. And I will just say we are all returning our pants back for a refund right now. No, it's good. It's good just to be together. You know what was so great about Wednesday night was just being together. And laughing together, having conversations together. Because when we come in this place for the purposes that we are, 
God sees us as his body, and we are. We're a family together, sons and daughters brought together. And we need to enjoy life together as we follow Christ together. So thanks for those that came um, Wednesday. And for those that didn't, there will be another Swayze Pants moment, I'm sure, in the future. Listen, you know, when I was in school, which was a really long time ago, um, but when I was in school, there was a test that I would dread. I would dread if I knew a midterm was coming, and in that midterm, the style of test that would be given would be one question. Did you ever have that professor that brought in just one question before you? Was I the only one? No. Okay. That one, I would rather have a hundred multiple choice questions than to be given one question. The passage that we're talking about today is about one question. And it's going to be a fabulous time of just digging into God's word and seeing what he has in front of us. And the, the theme of our whole series is two words and it says, follow me. That is what our life as a disciple of Christ is following him. So the, the first point I wanted to, to engage with this morning is the journey that we're on. And inside that journey that we need to understand from the get-go is that Jesus leads his disciples to the cross. That is the destination that we are all headed. We're going to unpack that a little bit more. But this gospel of Mark that we have been in for weeks and for months it has been moving at a blistering pace, right? The crowds are multiplying. The miracles are everywhere and to everyone. I mean, we've got stories where people are just touching the hem of his garments and they're being healed. The people have grown to such a place that they want to force Jesus, not ask Jesus, but they want to force Jesus to become their king, what about the religious leaders? What's going on with them? They're growing as well, but they're growing in the opposite direction. They're growing in an increased hatred of Jesus to the point of plotting and killing him. And what about the disciples? They're along for the ride, right? These disciples, they, they are, it's comical almost because they are growing in confidence and confusion at the same time. They're experiencing these miraculous moments, and out of those moments, they are asking questions that you want to say, were you really a part of the moment that just happened? Because that question doesn't quite relate. But inside of all of the immediatelys that we find in the book of Mark, it's just moving, moving, moving. There is one theme that has been building for the past eight chapters, and that one theme is this, that Mark tells and establishes in the stories that he's telling and the order that he's telling me is this, that Jesus Christ is the son of God. That's his first verse, actually, who has all authority. Remember that the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark is not built off of the words of Christ. What is it built off of? The action of Christ. The work of Christ. It has few words, actually, that Christ speaks. It has everything that Christ did. And he's establishing authority. He's established authority in these eight chapters. He's established authority over Satan and his demons. He's established authority as the teacher 
and preacher of God's word. He's established the authority to forgive sin, which was just blew the scribes away. Authority over creation. Remember, he spoke to the winds and the waves and they obeyed him. Authority over all sickness and every disease. Was there any sickness or disease that Jesus encountered that he went, oh, I got a, I got a time out on that one. I, I can't do that one. No. No, every disease he had authority over. And he even had authority to bestow his authority upon his disciples. So to this point, these eight chapters, his building this authority of Jesus in what Jesus has done. But what has not been referred to as of yet is the cross of Christ. But rest assured, this cross of Christ, it will not be delayed and it will not be denied. And Jesus is about to begin his journey to the cross and his disciples are to follow him. So our passage this morning is the crux. It is the pivot point. It literally is the centerpiece of the Gospel of Mark, falling in this part of chapter 8 of the 16 chapters of Mark. You're going to be really ready for a lot of trivia questions by the end of the sermon, all right? Six, how many chapters in Mark? 16. We're in chapter 8. It's in the very middle part of this. And this, this passage, this passage holds two things. One is the long-awaited for confession of his disciples of who they believe Jesus to be. And it also introduces for the first time the cross and what it means. Let's read the verses together. Won't you stand as we read God's word? Starting in verse 27 of Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So from the shores of Galilee, it's been inside of Galilee that all of these massive miracles have been happening. And this is where Jesus has been. And the disciples follow Jesus and they head not toward Jerusalem which would have been more in the southerly direction. But instead, they go the opposite direction, and they head north. For 30 miles, they start to trek to what is the foot of Mount Hermon. 
They will end in this place, and it references it in this, um, in this passage, that it ends in this place called Caesarea Philippi. Originally, this was named Paneus, and it was named Paneus after the Greek deity called Pan. Do you know Pan? Is that strange-looking half goat, half man, flute playing thing. Isn't that a God that you would want to worship? Half goat, half man that can play the flute. Yes, that's the right way to hold that. The flute. But listen, inside of this area, it's in that northern area and it is a very lush area. It's very tropical because of its water supply. There is a huge water supply that comes forth. In fact, it's an important one because it is a main water supply that begins the Jordan River. So inside of this became a place that was significant because of its beauty, but also because of its water supply. And in this place of Caesarea Philippi, there's actually a place. And when you go and tour this and do a Bible study tour, you go to this place and it's a grotto. Do you know what a grotto is? It's like a cave. It's like a big opened cave. And it becomes a significant area Because it's in that cave, and that cave itself is referred to many times as the gates of hell. Why? Because of thinking that the water supply, and at one time, I didn't know this until this week, at one time that water supply actually came from that cave. When you go there now, it doesn't come from that cave. But at at a certain point in history, it did come from that cave. And the people... This Gentile area saw that area as the underworld, the life of the underworld that was there. So because of that, they would worship Pan and other goddesses of fertility, and they would throw sacrifices in there. They would do detestable, um, dishonoring things there inside of the picture that you have. You seen the picture yet? Yeah. Inside of that picture is kind of the drawing of maybe what would have been there inside of the temples and and such inside of that. We had a really significant moment when we went to Israel this past time because we had a moment where two of our um, Agape Pregnancy Center um, staff was there, Meg and Anne-Marie, and we stood there. And we looked into this place realizing that the fight that we fight for life every single day is not a new fight. It's been going on a long time and had just a very special prayer time there. But it's such an interesting place for Jesus to do this significant moment. It's as if Jesus takes his disciples after all of these miracles and all of these teaching. And he takes them to the most northern, the most northern place possible. Of the promised land. It's a fascinating thing to think and sketch out where Jesus actually was for all of his miracles. It's actually as if he walked the entirety of the promised land doing miracles. Just an interesting thought. But he takes them to the most northern place of the promised land. And it's here in the center of A pagan worship of Greek gods that he puts himself as a juxtaposition 
to the world's religion and ask, who do you say that I am? And in that moment of after asking that question, we're going to dig into that in a minute. It is in the moment. This is why it's the pivot point from this northernmost point. It's as if Jesus does an about face, faces his puts his face like flint to Jerusalem and starts walking to the cross. And he tells his disciples, follow me. And as he is inside of this moment, the crux of the moment is the question. And Jesus, when he's asking us a question, when we ask each other questions... Just think about the questions we ask one another. So many times, most of the time, it's not a question of the heart. It's like a question of behavior. It's a question of the external things around. Jesus' questions are always concerned with the heart. And so too it is with this question that he is asking. And he asked his disciples this. He starts with this question. Who do people say that I am? Now, it's important to know that that word ask in the Greek is an imperfect verb. You know what that means? Say no and I'll tell you. What that means is this was not a one-time ask and moving on question. He continually is asking them this question. I can imagine Jesus on this trek by foot asking, so what do, you, what do you think the scribes say that I am? Remember that woman that was healed with the issue of blood? Who, who do you think that she says that I am? Recounting the miracles, recounting the people. And he's asking them because why is he asking them? Because it would have been the disciples that would have heard the chatter and the whispers. And the speculations and the rumors. It would have been the disciples, and we even see stories of this, that in the midst of that, they would have been pulled aside by the people or the scribes and said, now who is this guy? That they would have had to answer the question. But I think more than anything, it is Jesus asked them this question is because he knows that many times through these first eight chapters... The disciples thought the same thing that the people were saying. They were as confused as the people themselves. And so the disciples replied to the question. They say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. Now, all of these people, the multitudes of people, they've heard his teaching. They witnessed his power. They've experienced his healing, yet they conclude that Jesus was simply a 2.0 version of their forefathers. He was simply the next prophet in the line of prophets that God had given. All of these answers that they're giving is coming from unbelief's blindness. Remember those stories of being blind? Is coming from that place because the Son of God is standing before them and has been standing before them. But all that they can see is a next prophet that may be 
given. Jesus stands above every other, right? None compare to him. Every prophet, every priest, every king in the Old Testament that was anointed before the Lord served as a preparation to recognize the coming Messiah. None of them were the Messiah, but each was a forerunner. We call it a type, a type of the Son of God coming to save. So when we say names like Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Elijah, David, they all pointed to this coming promised anointed one whose name would be Jesus. And they fell, the people fell in the same trap that we fall into. The people saw Jesus as one standing in the shadows of all of their forefathers. Can you see that? And they were blind to the fact that the opposite was actually what was true. It was Jesus that's the reality. And all of these prophets were in his shadow throughout history. And when we see that kind of reaction among the people, it is so easy to to convict them and to judge them. But we do the same thing. Let me put it in some terminology that may convict your heart like it does before mine. Because we too stand in the shadows and we want to worship only the shadow of Christ and not Christ himself. Because we can admire a sunset and forget its creator. We can experience his grace every single day. And if we are breathing, we are experiencing his grace every single day and easily assume the giver. We can taste his provision and we can forget to thank the provider. But see, Jesus asked this question for a very important reason, too. I think Jesus asked this as his first question of what do others say that I am? Because he does not want for them nor for us. He does not want them to stand in either the belief or the unbelief of someone else. So before he asked the question... Of their own heart. He asked this question because he doesn't want their answers to be the foundation of their heart. He wants to expose and to cleanse their minds of any residue of others' unbelief. You know it's coming. What about you? How much of what you believe is based upon the opinions or the beliefs of others. And they could be really great people like my mom. But my mom's belief is my mom's belief. My belief is my belief. And here is what I'm going to kind of go take a right-hand turn, give me that privilege for just a second because I think it's important. Here's what's true. One day, when we as believers in Christ stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we don't get to bring two or three friends with us. 
We don't, have to br- we don't get to bring character witnesses with us. We stand alone. When I describe that to you, does that scare you to death? Be honest. You don't have to say it out loud. I want you to nod your head up or down or left or right. Does that scare you? It shouldn't. It should be exactly what you want. I want to invite Richard to come up. Because I know how when we think of that kind of a moment, it exposes how we're living our life today, right? If that feels naked, if that feels exposed and vulnerable instead of safe and secure, it shows what we're thinking right now and how we're living our life right now. Because to stand at the judgment seat of Christ by myself the great news is I'm not standing by myself I stand in Christ there is one that will do a witness and his is the only one that matters and it's not my mom it's not my godly stepdad Ernest it's not my son it's Jesus I'm so glad my iPad has light on it. (laughs) Listen, it's Jesus. Don't let that distract you from this moment. Listen. I've asked Richard to sing just a portion of a song that very well could be the song that we sing at the judgment seat of Christ. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no
stand at the judgment seat of Christ. That is what we will say. All I have is Christ. And let that not be a day that awaits us. The sermon is not over, but let that be today. It feels like it's ending. It's not. Listen, let it be today. Let us discover the question that Jesus turns his attention to his disciples. And he says to them, who do you say I am? You say, I have Christ. All I have is Christ. And if that question of who do you say that I am, again, it is Peter who speaks up on behalf of all the disciples. And he declares, say it with me, you are the Christ. Say it with me. You are the Christ. And we hear Christ so frequently that we miss the meaning of what Christ means. That Greek word of Christ, Christos, is the same word in Hebrew as Messiah. Both Christos and Messiah means the same thing, and that is the anointed one. Peter is saying to Jesus in this moment, Jesus, you are God's anointed Messiah. Peter and the other disciples' eyes were opened by God the Father to see and believe that Jesus was God's promised anointed one. What they saw and what their lips confessed were, Jesus, you are God's promised anointed one from the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3.8 And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. The next thing, Jesus, you are God's promised anointed one from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49, 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Jesus, Peter is saying, Jesus, you are God's promised anointed one from the house of David. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is... The name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Peter is saying, Jesus, you are God's anointed Messiah, the one whom we have waited for. But Jesus does a strange thing. He immediately turns to his disciples at this awakening that they've just had. And he turns to them and he says, now don't tell anybody. Why? We're about to discover why, but I'll go ahead and spoil it for you. They only knew half of who the Messiah was. The half they knew was correct, but they only knew half. They only knew in part. Just when they thought that they figured out the puzzle, Jesus throws a bombshell in the middle of their conversation. And he does a revelation and a revealing And inside of this revealing, Jesus does some important things. Jesus reveals himself, 
plainly, persistently, and without compromise. In this moment, in this crux, in this middle of these 16 chapters, Jesus unlocks the mystery of the Messiah. And this is it. The conquering king is also the suffering servant. I am he. Jesus has spoken in parables for two years. It left everyone with their head scratching. But in this moment, in this important moment, he reveals his mission plainly to his disciples. It is now time for them to hear what is going to happen. Because what is going to happen is also going to affect them. And he tells them the shocking revelation that the Son of Man must suffer many things. That the Son of Man must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. That the Son of Man must be killed. That the Son of Man will rise again after three days. And Peter is stunned. He is hearing something that makes zero sense to him. We read that. We know the fullness of the story. He is now for the very first time hearing something he did not know and made zero sense to him. And he's asking in his own heart, how can the conquering king be the the king that conquers if he first must suffer, be rejected and die? Peter must have been screaming within himself, No, it cannot be. You are our promised deliverer. Just as Moses delivered the people from Egypt, you are going to deliver us from Rome. You are our Savior who will overthrow the oppressive ones and establish an indestructible kingdom. And Jesus, what does Jesus quickly do? Rebukes Peter. By turning and seeing his disciples, he says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. It is critical that we understand that Jesus is not condemning Peter. He is strongly correcting Peter. And that's what he does with us. There is... Now, then, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? No condemnation. But there's a lot of correction. (laughs) I experienced a lot of correction. And I want to remind you of the reality of where they are and what's happening. They are on a 30-mile trek from Galilee to Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is asking with that imperfect verb, these 10 hours that it probably would take to travel by foot that distance over that terrain is this conversation as a primary point. Inside of that, I can just hear Jesus not just rebuking, not just correcting, but also teaching. Teaching Peter and these disciples something that he, Peter and the disciples, did not know beforehand. I can hear in my heart, and I can just imagine Jesus following the rebuke with a teaching that he 
is the man of sorrows in Isaiah chapter 53. I want to read Isaiah 53 in a different kind of a way. I want to read it in a way that could have been maybe how Jesus said it over the course of those 10 hours as they traveled to Caesarea Philippi with Peter with his mouth opened in disbelief. Maybe Jesus would have said this. Peter, I will be despised and rejected by men. I will be a man of sorrows and acquainted with your grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, I will be despised and esteemed not. Surely I will bear your griefs and I will carry your sorrows. Yet I will be esteemed stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But I will be pierced for your transgressions. I will be crushed for your iniquities, Peter. Upon me will be the chastisement that will bring you peace. And with my wounds, you, Peter, will be healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and all have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on me the iniquity of all. Peter, I will be oppressed and I will be afflicted. Yet I will not open my mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so I will not open my mouth. I can just hear Jesus saying, Peter, that's me. I am the suffering servant who is also the conquering king. It has always been me. Peter, trust me that my kingdom will be established because of, not in spite of, my death. For Peter, without my wounds, there is no peace and there is no healing for you. Peter, I will not compromise who I am. I will not compromise why I came. And I will not compromise what I must do. Jesus would persistently repeat this same revelation two more times. In chapters 9 and 10 of Mark. Each time the disciples respond in ways that reveal yet again they just don't get it. But Jesus lovingly and with patience repeats what is coming as they walk toward that cross. And I just want to end with this. I relate to Peter. Oftentimes, my stumbling block of faith is not believing who Jesus is. I see him and I love singing King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I love singing Redeemer and Savior and Friend. It's not who Jesus is that makes me stumble often. 
It's how Jesus is going to be Jesus in me that makes me stumble. I find myself like Peter, screaming, sometimes literally, no, Lord, not that way. Not the way requiring my suffering, my rejection, and even my death. I want an easier way. I want a less painful way. My flesh will demand. Listen to this. I want a way that does not involve the cross. Listen to that again. I want a way that does not involve the cross. And to that, Jesus says to me, get thee behind me, Satan. For you carry, you're not setting your mind on things of God, but you carry or setting on the things of man. Because when you think of Satan, what did Satan want more than anything from Jesus? He wanted him not to go to the cross. In his temptation of Jesus, what did he do? He offered him all the kingdoms. Isn't that what the people wanted him to do was to be king of the kingdom? (laughs) Satan offered that. Why did he offer that? Because he offered that and Jesus said, yes, guess what wouldn't have happened? The cross. Jesus will not compromise the cross. And I just end with this. That a mind set on things of the flesh argues with God it avoids the cross and it turns away from Jesus but a mind that's set on the things of God it agrees with God it embraces the cross and it follows Jesus so as we come to this ending moment the question is not for others It's not for the disciples. It is for you. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you believe that he is the promised, anointed, suffering servant? Do you believe that he bore your grief? That he carried your sorrow? That he was pierced for your iniquity. And that he was the the lamb slain for your sins. Do you believe that he is the conquering king? Do you believe that he actually conquered death to rise again? Do you believe that Daniel 7, 13 through 14 is reality? That the son of man is coming With the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days. And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion. And glory. And a kingdom. That all peoples including us. Nations and languages. Should serve him. That his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Which shall not pass away. And his kingdom the one. Which shall not be destroyed. Do you believe that he is Christ. The Messiah. And just like in your life, as if it were 16 chapters written, we stand today at chapter 8. 
And we have seen from chapter 1 of our life to chapter 8 that this might be for some in this room that have not yet given their life to Christ. You have seen his hand. You have heard his voice. He has shown himself to you in miraculous, incredible ways over and over again. He has given you breath to breathe on this day. Who do you say that he is? I pray it would be today that you would say, you are Jesus, the Son of God, the promised Messiah who has come, who died for me and my sin, so that I might live to God forever and ever and ever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we say thank you for who you are. And Lord, the the detail of who you are is overwhelms our heart. But Lord, the how of how you walk, Lord, makes our heart lean in toward you. As it becomes hard to embrace a cross, Lord, I thank you that is what you're asking us to do and you never ask us to do anything for our condemnation but for our good and your glory. Lord, may we experience the true redeemer of our lives. May our song be hallelujah. All I have is Christ today. Not when we stand before you face to face, but may we come to that realization and say that now on this day and may our lives reflect that. Thank you for this time that we've been able to, to dig inside of your word. And I pray your word would dig inside of us. I pray that that question, who do you say that I am, would not be one that, that we hear and leave, but just as it was with the disciples, that it would be repeated over and over and over again. And that our lives would be one that would follow you. In the name of Jesus, we pray.